abgenommen bedauert. Unsolved Mysteries. Out of deference to people who may still be living, character names in some of these unsolved mysteries have been changed. The fact that a man may be arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced for the crime of murder does not always, at least to everyone's satisfaction, mean the solution of a murder mystery. Particularly so is this the case in the trial of Oscar Slater. And to those lovers of the great character Sherlock Holmes, it must be of interest to know that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle spent 17 years of his life trying to prove that Oscar Slater did not commit murder. A murder that to this day is one of Scotland Yard's unsolved mysteries. scene is Glasgow, Scotland, the night of December 21st. Thick, soot-laden fog swirls along the dimly lighted streets. A fog so thick that it deadens even that roar of traffic which rises perpetually from Glasgow's teeming thoroughfares. Outside 15 Queen's Terrace, a street lamp throws a grayish-yellow circle on the damp pavement. But inside number 15 Queen's Terrace, an apartment house. What the deuce is that? Sounds as if it came from Miss Gilchrist. But Miss Gilchrist could hardly be making that noise. The servant Lambie could. I'm going up there. I don't like it. Oh, good evening, Mr. Adams. Good evening, Lambie. You weren't by any chance chopping wood or something upstairs. Oh, no, Mr. Adams. I've been down to the corner for the evening piper. Uh, who's up there? Coming out of Miss Gilchrist's apartment. Oh, I don't know. I never saw him before. Let's go up there. I don't like the look of things. Oh, the door's open, and I left it closed. I don't see Miss Gilchrist in the living room. Oh. What is it? Oh, what is it? Look behind the dining table. Oh. Is, is she dead? Yes. That man. The man we saw leave the room. Stop him. Stop him. Please, murder. Stop that man. But the man had gone. All trace of him swallowed up in the rolling bank of fog. Fifteen minutes later, the police, the examining doctor for the Crown, and the detective inspector are on the scene of the crime. Now, Sergeant? Yes, sir. Have the boys check up every boarding house, hotel, everything, and find out every single person who has checked out in the past hour and from now on. Yes, sir. Anything else, sir? Check steamship passengers. Of course, sir. Pawnbrokers. 
Uh, keep a lookout for pieces of jewelry such as you see in that photograph on the piano. That photograph of Miss Gilchrist. At once, sir. Uh, finished, Doctor? Yes, Inspector. How did the murderer get in here? Both doors can only have been opened from the inside. Let the newspapers work that out. I'm a police inspector. All I want is the murderer. 24 hours later in the Glasgow Police Headquarters, the detective inspector sits behind a table going through the mass of information unearthed by his department. A sergeant of police bursts excitedly into the room, a piece of brown wrapping paper in one hand, a ship's sailing and passenger list in the other. Inspector, look here. What is it, Sergeant? Found this wrapping paper in a flat vacated late last night. Yes, what is it? It's from a jeweler, evidently used to wrap a watch or something about that size. Name on the label, Oscar Slater. Yes, go on. Slight build, nervous, foreign-looking. Fits a description of the murderer given by Lambie. Then this, the shipping list of the Empress of Calcutta. Third-class passage book next day. The day following the murder. Two persons, Otto Sando and wife. Oscar Slater. Otto Sando. Good work, Sergeant. I'll cable the United States and have the New York police hold Mr. Otto Sando for identification. The New York police arrested Otto Sando, who turned out to be Oscar Slater. A month later, the prisoner was shipped back to Scotland. And in May, in the High Court of Scotland, Oscar Slater was tried before my Lord Guthrie. The witness Larry to the stand, please. You've been duly sworn? Yes, my lord. On the night of the murder, you saw the murderer leave Miss Gilchrist's room. May please, your lordship, I protest. The witness is not competent to judge whether or not the person seen leaving the murdered woman's room is or was the murderer. I'll put the question in this manner. You would recognize the person you saw leaving Miss Gilchrist's room? Yes, my lord. Is he in the court? He is, my lord. He is the prisoner. Oh. That is all. Learned counsel for the defense may question the witness on behalf of the prisoner. Thank you, my lord. Lambie, I wish you to be very careful in your answers. You say that the prisoner at bar is the man you saw leaving Miss Gilchrist's flat? Yes, my lord. How do you recognize him? By his features. Nothing else? I don't understand. In New York, you identified the prisoner by his peculiar walk. I'm reading from your deposition taken at that time. I recognized the prisoner by the peculiar walk. I did not see his features. I did not see his features clearly. And your identification today is more clear than of one month ago? That is all. You may stand down. Mr. Adams to the stand... You understand that the oath taken yesterday is still binding upon you? Yes, my lord. You saw the man the Crown contends was the murderer leaving Miss Gilchrist's flat? Yes, my lord. Is he in court? Yes, my lord. He is the prisoner. That is all. Your witness, counsel for the defense. Adams, learned counsel for the Crown has asked you definitely if the prisoner at bar is the man you saw leaving Miss Gilchrist. Do you swear positively and absolutely that he is the man? I am a little nearsighted, my lord. I should not care to swear at this distance. Go to the prisoner. Look him in the face. He is on trial for his life. Much depends upon your answer. Will you swear that that is the man? My lord, to the best of my belief, this is the man. Oh. Defense thanks the witness for his fair-mindedness. He may stand down. May it please the court, the Crown rests its case upon the evidence presented. Then learned counsel for the Crown may address the jury. I thank his lordship. You have heard these witnesses swear that the prisoner, Oscar Slater, is the man seen leaving Miss Gilchrist's flat. I come next to the prisoner's guilty flight, for guilty it was. An honest man does not engage passage on a vessel in an assumed name, not after the hue and cry has been raised about a brutal murder. It is always a painful duty to plead with a jury to condemn a man to death, but in this case I say to you, with every fiber of my being, that... As counsel for the defense... I say that the Crown has not even attempted to show how the prisoner attained entrance to Miss Gilchrist's flat. The door to the apartment house was locked with a spring lock. The prisoner had not any means of obtaining a key. Not only that, 
But the prisoner, supposing that he had obtained entrance to the apartment house, had no means of entering Miss Gilchrist's flat, unless she herself admitted him. And, gentlemen of the jury, Miss Gilchrist was found lying before the hearth in the dining room. She would have screamed long ere that, had she been afraid. And I say to you, gentlemen of the jury, that that one fact alone clears the prisoner, because the murderer, gentlemen, was someone known to Miss Gilchrist, since she never would have admitted the murderer without protest. Gentlemen, I have finished. The life of a man, a human being, is in your hands. The jury may retire to consider their verdict. On such evidence, then, did the jury retire to consider a verdict. Both the police and the prosecution completely ignored the difficulty of the murderer's access to the murdered woman's apartment. But the jury was absent just one hour and ten minutes. And now they are again in the jury box. Gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have, my lord. We find the prisoner as charged guilty. My, my lord, may I say one word? Will you allow me to speak? I think learned counsel for the defense should instruct his client. But if he insists, I shall allow him to talk. My lord, what shall I say? My father and mother are poor people. I come of my own free will from America. I come to defend my right. I know nothing about it. I come from America. I know nothing about this murder. Prisoner at the bar, you have been found guilty of murder. You will be taken from this courtroom to the place whence you came. And thence to a place of lawful execution. Where you will be hanged by the neck till you be dead. 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 And may God have mercy on your soul. But Oscar Slater did not hang. People who saw in the case a mystery not to be solved by the mere bringing in of a verdict of guilty appealed to the Home Secretary and the prisoner's sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. Oscar Slater served 17 years in prison. Today he is free, absolved of the crime, and the British government, in recognition of the miscarriage of justice, awarded him a considerable sum of money. In just a moment, you will hear a solution to the trial of Oscar Slater. gentlemen, inasmuch as any solution must of necessity be supposition, liberties of time, place, and characters have been taken in this solution for which you have been waiting. We return you to the High Court of Scotland, where my Lord Guthrie, presiding at the trial of Oscar Slater, sums up the evidence before the jury. In his lordship's summing up lies the solution as to how the murderer gained access to Miss Gilchrist's home. Order in the court. Learned counsel for the defense has no other motion to make before the bench addresses the jury. No, my lord. Counsel for the crown has no additional evidence. No, my lord. 
As presiding judge in this case, I do not feel that it is necessary to dwell upon the seriousness of the crime or the importance of your verdict. The learned counsel for the defense has made an issue of the fact that Oscar Slater could not gain access to the murdered woman's home. But, gentlemen, I would be delinquent in my duty if I did not point out to you that that was not the impossibility, it seems. In the first place, it must be borne in mind that it was not a key which was required to gain admittance to Miss Gilchrist's house. That is, to open the front door. There was a speaking tube arrangement whereby the caller could speak to the inhabitant of any particular apartment. The occupant of the apartment, satisfied that he or she wished to see the caller, would then pull a release which opened the catch on the front door. This was the defense point when they maintained that the murderer must have been known to Miss Gilchrist in order to have gained admittance. A study of human frailties, though, will show that this does not necessarily apply. Undoubtedly, Lambie the maid, going as she did each night for an evening paper, would upon occasion forget her latchkey. What then would she do? She would ring the bell. Tell Miss Gilchrist through the speaking tube arrangement that she had forgotten her key, and Miss Gilchrist would then release the door catch. After this had occurred many times, as it must have over a period of years, Miss Gilchrist would, if the bell were rung immediately after Lambie's departure, release the door catch without question. This, then, was what the murderer was waiting for. The murderer undoubtedly had watched the inhabitants for a period of time. And one night, the night of the murder, Lambie the maid left to get the evening paper. The murderer stepped quickly to the door and rang the bell. Miss Gilchrist, thinking that once again Lambie had forgotten her key, would release the catch, leave the apartment door open. The murderer would enter, and in a few moments everything would be over. And so a judge on the bench solved the real mystery as to how Miss Gilchrist was murdered. But to this day, no one knows who the actual murderer was. And to the Glasgow police, the famous Oscar Slater case is still an unsolved mystery. Unsolved Mysteries. Down the ages, man has been seeking the answer to the riddle, what happens in the unseen realm beyond? With all our science, we're as far from answering that question as man was in the beginning. But with the accumulated records of the past, the conviction is borne strongly upon some that there is a link joining us mortals with those who have passed this way before.
scene is the famous American newspaper correspondent's home. It is evening, and a group of guests are seated around the table enjoying their after-dinner coffee and cigars. The log fire casts a ruddy glow over the room, and the soft candlelight throws grotesque shadow shapes on the walls and ceiling as the guests settle themselves more comfortably in their chairs. <laughs> but seriously, Bert, while that was a good story, well told you. You don't really believe in ghosts. Well, before I answer that question, let me ask you one. Oh, go ahead. Mm, do you completely, wholly, and absolutely disbelieve in them? Right, Joe, when you put it that way, I'm not sure that I can answer you, Bert. <laughs> I suppose in their heart of hearts, most men, while they won't admit it, do have a secret belief in ghosts or something similar. Well, what do you say, Jackson? You're a newspaper man of wide experience. Have you ever run into what you might call a true ghost story in your newspaper work? Yes, I have. An experience of my own, and one, in fact, which I owe my life. Exactly, Jackson. It was that experience of yours that I had in mind. What is that, Jackson? Something we haven't heard about? I don't tell it to many people. But you will tell it to us. Why don't you, Jackson? It's going to be published next month anyway. All right. As you fellows know, I was foreign correspondent of the Sketch Mirror Group, and one of my assignments was to interview celebrities before they became celebrities. Well, I had to make a quick trip to England. It looked very much as if the Asquith government was about to fall, and that Lloyd George would be in the saddle. So I had to interview Lloyd George before the news broke. I concluded my interview and was all ready to leave when I met an old friend. He had become a lord since I first knew him, but that made no difference to him. And the result was that I found myself in their Northumberland home, being greeted by her ladyship and her very charming daughter. Cheerio there, Major. Hello, sis. I want you both to both meet a very old friend of mine, Jackson. Well, not me, Mr. Jackson. The very first. I'm so glad to meet you, Mr. Jackson. Keith has spoken of you so much. And I'm delighted to meet Keith's mother and sister. Oh, come, Evelyn, dear. We mustn't keep Mr. Jackson standing in the cold. You shan't want the carriage anymore tonight, Dobbs. Uh, very good, sir. All right. Baxter will take your taps up. Come right into the hall and get your bones thrown out. Thanks, old man. It is a bit silly, huh? Mm, riding up to the house here in a carriage is an experience to one accustomed to riding in a closed car. We don't use the car much up here, and tonight Arthur has it down in the village, getting in some supplies. <laughs> it was charming, even if chilly. But then this open fire makes up for all the cold. Drink, Jackson? Well, thanks, yes. Stay then. Ah. Thanks. Oh, yes, how? Oh, did you boys have dinner tonight? Thank you, we did, on the train. And by the way, I take back all I've ever thought or said about dinners on an English train. That was one of the best meals I ever had. <laughs> Possibly you were more hungry than usual. There's something I must say, even if all the books ever written on etiquette say that it's contrary to good taste. Oh, what is that, Mr. Jackson? I'm sure we'll forgive you. Your home. It is without question the most beautiful place I've ever seen. Why, when we were driving up the hill, it looked like some picture out of a children's storybook. A picture of an old medieval castle. The drawbridge, the portcullis, the moat, the towers, and the turrets. It is somewhat of a medieval castle. The north wing was built in the days of Henry II, and each generation since has added this little bit. And we, well, we added electric lights and plumbing. The plumbing with the devout approval of the family... The electric lights against my mo own most ardent objection. <laughs> <laughs> well, with electric lights and plumbing, I can't think of anything more to be desired. We even have one of the best ghosts in all England. Yes? By Joseph, you might at least give a chap time to warm his feet before you drag out the family's skeleton. Our ghost is not a skeleton. You shouldn't say things like that. You must forgive Evelyn, Mr. Jackson. But maybe Evelyn's ghost is a, well, 
almost an obsession with Evelyn. <laughs> well, I'm sure that if Lady Evelyn's ghost is half as charming as you are, Miss Evelyn, then she's a ghost I'd like very much to meet. <laughs> well, thank you. Let's go to the gallery and show Mr. Jackson Lady Evelyn's portrait. No, no, my dear. I'd be delighted, really, if it isn't too much trouble. No trouble at all, Jackson. In fact, we're all tired. Since the gallery's on the way to the bedroom... Come along, Mr. Jackson. You come with me. You see, Mr. Jackson, Lady Evelyn's ghost is a very special ghost. She always warns us of any impending disaster. And do you always heed her warning? We do now. And she warned Mother about Father. Father paid no attention. He was killed. Just as the ghost warned Mother he would be. Is that the only instance? Oh, no. It's a family tradition dating back several hundred years. Here's the gallery. I'll switch on the light. Mm, no need to tell me which one. There she is. Yes. Why? It could be a portrait of you. I say, old man, don't pay too much attention to what Evelyn tells you about the family skeleton, you know. Keith is quite right, Mr. Jackson. Evelyn is unduly enthusiastic. She's not any more enthusiastic than I am. I'm enjoying the whole thing immensely. Fact is, I'd rather like to meet this ghost, uh, Lady Evelyn. Then, then why don't you sleep in the haunted wing? No, oh, my dear, my dear. Yes, by Jove. Invite a fellow up here, and the first time you want to stick him in the haunted wing. But Jackson did sleep in the haunted wing. The wind howled dismally among the turrets and along the roof leads. The oak-paneled walls creaked as night wore on and the cold became more intense. One by one, the sounds in the old castle died away, and soon Jackson fell into a sound sleep. He wakened with a feeling that someone was in the room. Sat up in the big four-poster bed. A woman stood against the far wall. Uh, Miss Evelyn, dressed in old-fashioned clothes, playing the part of the ghost. But the figure shook its head, turned a pair of luminous eyes on him, and started to write on the wall. For a moment, the warning message blazed out in letters of fire. Jackson closed his eyes and, and looked again. A trick. She's writing with phosphorus or something. Again, the figure shook its head. Gave him a searching look that went right through him, and turning, walked out of the room through the three-foot stone wall. By George, eight o'clock. I didn't realize I was taking so long to tell this story. You'll be late for the theater. Oh, hang the theater. Finish the story. Yes, sure. Well, I did my best to disregard the ghost warning. His lordship drove me to the boat. Or I should say he tried to, but the car broke down. I missed the boat. And two days later, Keith, with a face as white as a sheet, handed me the morning paper. In glaring headlines, I read, Steamship Titanic Sunk, All on Board Lost. Of course, that was an exaggeration. But I might have been one of the more than thousand who were lost. Good Lord. What did the warning that was written on the wall say? Beware of the Titanic. Nothing more. I told her ladyship next morning, and she was the one who instructed the chauffeur when she found I was determined to sail. She instructed him to break the car, if necessary, to prevent my sailing on the Titanic. Now, do you fellows believe in ghosts? Imagination or not, Jackson, old boy, we're glad you missed the Titanic. And we're darn glad you're here to be our host at this dinner party. Now, we've got time for one toast and off to the theater. Out of deference to people who are still alive... Character names in these unsolved mysteries have been changed. Inasmuch as any solution must of necessity be supposition, 
Liberties of time, place, and character exist in the solution that will be presented after you have heard from your sponsor. Gentlemen, the solution for which you have been waiting. Of course, I don't blame you for believing in ghosts after an experience like that. But just the same, you can't really explain it. I think I can. I'd like to hear you. Have you ever met a perfect stranger and had the strange sensation of having met him somewhere before? Yes, certainly. Well, the same thing applies to buildings. And the older these buildings are, the more vibration of previous happenings there will be to make their effect upon you. You mean to say that if I go into a building where a murder has been committed, I'll be aware of a strange feeling? You will, if you're sufficiently sensitive. I'll agree there, but that doesn't explain actually seeing what is generally called a ghost. If you've ever tried lying down in perfect ease and comfort, allowing your imagination to drift back to some particularly memorable scene, the picture will come to you as vividly as if it had happened yesterday. Or take an author writing a story. The characters are just as real in his mind as any group of living people about whom he has only read. I'll agree to all that. Very well. Don't you think that if, over a period of centuries, people living in a certain house are all agreed that the ghost of a beautiful woman haunts the house, don't you think that that impression will impress itself very strongly upon a stranger who sleeps in the so-called haunted room? Yes, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I really do think that if a sufficient number of people all think along one line, something is going to result. And, of course, you were thinking of your trip on the Titanic as well as the ghost. So you're willing to admit that concentrated thinking will produce a manifestation. And if that's the case, why deny that an extremely emotional incident would produce a similar manifestation? Hey, there's something to that, isn't there? Yeah, you've got me almost convinced. But just the same, I'll have a stronger belief in ghosts when I meet one face to face. Well, if I ever meet a ghost, I hope it will be like the ghost of the Lady Evelyn. One that will have such good intentions bred in it that even if I'm a stranger, it will warn me of any impending disaster. Of course, the ghost of Lady Evelyn would have warned anyone who had been in the room whether or not they had had any intention of sailing on the Titanic. That part of it, I think, is coincidence. Do you?
Unsolved Mysteries. Calabar River in West Africa, the dense jungle stretches forward into tomorrow and backward into yesterday. A soggy, muggy fog rises perpetually from the dank moss. And in the midst of this, nature's primal setting, Harry Hartier, an ivory trader, has made his home. An old hulk of a boat with masts cut away and superstructure remodeled floats on the Calabar River. And this is Harry's home. Tonight, the ivory trader is entertaining a safari bound for the Gold Coast. Natives glistening black in the moonlight carry away the empty dinner dishes as the guests, with Harry in their midst, settle down to coffee and cigars. <laughs> well, when's the dinner here, Harry? And beautifully served. You have a very comfortable home here on the river. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this old hulk has been my trading post and home combined for the best part of 60 years. Don't you ever long for your native country here, Hartley? Oh, once in a long, long while, perhaps I think of it. Uh, but this Africa is in my blood. Take me away from it and I would die. Uh, there's something about it that gets you. Sometimes you do think it's the jungle and, and then you think it's the natives. Then you say to yourself, perhaps it's the witch doctor Sundar magic. And then you sum it all up and decide that it's Africa. You mentioned the witch doctor here, Hartley. Tell me honestly as an old-timer out here... Do they do half the things they're credited with? Yeah, Captain Parkley, they do. I could keep you up all night with stories of their black magic. I could make your blood run cold, telling you of some of the things I have seen with my own eyes. Oh, but we shan't call it black magic, because often as not, what they do is as white as any white man's medicine. 
What do you mean by that, Herr Archer? I owe my life to black magic, so-called. You do? Yeah, let's hear about it. I know a lot about this Africa now. But when I first come out here, I knew nothing. Nothing. I laughed at witch doctors. I poo-pooed black magic. I, why, I was a white man. And what did these poor black heathens know, anyhow? <laughs> I was out on the trail of a load of ivory. Six weeks away from home I was, when I went down with fever. Hans Volkenau and Fritz Hoffmann were with me, I remember. It was night, and the lions, they were out on the prowl. And the jungle was uneasy because we, white men, had invaded it. Better not be my camp tonight, Harry, huh? Maybe so it is, Hobbesoy. Oh, I'm tired. I think I have the fever. If it is the fever that you have, Harry, better it is that you take the fire. Oh, yeah, yeah, Fritz. Order the boys to make a fire. We can camp here, and when they have the baggage laid out, I, I will find the quinine and take it. Oh, boy. He makes Boma here. This number one place, Bona, for make camp. You fix him number one, Bona. I get him, boys. Fix him, Boma. Yeah, that's a good cooler. Uh, here, Harry. Uh, better you lie down here. Uh, thank you, thank you, Fritz. Where is the Kleinan, Harry? In the baggage with the yellow waterproof covering. Uh, in this enamel box, Harry? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That is the one. Now, the white paper package. Uh, but there is not any white paper package here, not Harry. Not there, not there. No Kleinan. Nine, Harry, nine, oh. not here. Oh, dear, the bales. We must look. It must be there. It must be there. Radically, the two men tear open the bales lying on the ground. The native carriers draw back into the shadows as they see the look of despair on Harry's face. The looks of anguish on the faces of his two friends. Again and again they search the bales, but the life-saving quinine is not to be found. Silently the two friends seat themselves beside Harry. The natives draw further into the deeper shadows. Even the jungle beasts, sensing the approach of death, draw off into the dense underbrush, leaving the three white men to their thoughts. Fritz hears a step behind him and looks up to see Kula, the number one boy, standing looking down at him. White man medicine, no got. Nine, Kula. White man medicine, no got. Harry, born or die. White man medicine, no can find. Quiet, Kula. Yeah, yeah, Fritz. Yeah, Kula. Harry, born or die. Oh, you take Harry, born back to live a home. You may leave me here. Oh, Harry, yeah. We'll take you back there. White man believe black man medicine. Harry, born no die. What? That's a step, Kula. Harry, born Hans Buona, Fritz Buona, believe black man witch doctor. Then, Harry Buona, no die. Me, Fritz, believe anything, give anything, everything, if Harry Buona get well. Me, I do the same thing, Kula. He speak witch doctor. This white man medicine, where you leave him? Can you hear, Harry? Where did you leave the quinine? It, it must be on the desk in my room. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember now. I forgot to pack it. Yeah, yeah, never mind that now, Harry. Why nine? Uh, why That white man medicine? Yeah, Kula. Which doctor, man, he catch him? But Kula, it is six weeks' journey. Back to the river. Even the fastest runner could not do it in less than five. We go now. Speak which doctor. If which doctor say yes, you no speak, no say one word. You sit. You look, see, all right, but no speak, no move. Yeah, yeah, Kula. Anything but you say. Kula moves into the shadows. The seconds creep by like hours. Each man hears the beating of his own heart, and each man is afraid to look at his friend. Fritz draws a deep, hissing breath as the witch doctor, an old man hideous to look at, comes into the rim of the firelight. 
With a sharpened twig, the witch doctor draws a crude circle on the ground. Then he gazes fixedly at Harry, lying before him in semi-stupor. Now the witch doctor lies down in the circle, and Kula, bending over him, ties his hands and feet. Slowly, the native carriers, men and women, come into the ruddy glow of the firelight, and slowly they begin to circle the witch doctor. The drums begin to throb, softly at first, then as the stamping of bare feet becomes more vigorous, the circling more rapid, the drum throbs become a frenzied beat. One by one, the natives fall exhausted to the ground. The long night drags on. The pale light of day breaks over the treetops and through the branches. One single ray of light falls on the witch doctor's feet. Hans, Hans, Alfred, look. Look at the witch doctor's feet. A wise package. Got in him the package what Harry left at home. Yeah, Alfred, the white package, which the quinine. Good Lord, dear Archie, I, I can hardly believe it. I can. You, your story was so real, I felt I was actually there sitting beside you in the jungle. I saw it all. Heard the drums, the natives. Yeah, yeah. I am an old man now, but I have not forgotten that night. I should think you wouldn't. It must have been horrible. Oh, sure, Captain Parkley. What you see now, why I say that black magic saved my life. But how do you account for it? How do you explain the transporting of that quinine over six weeks' distance in one night? Oh, I cannot be certain, of course. I have tried to explain it to myself. Hmm? And let's hear your explanation. Very well, I will. Uh, but excuse me a moment. I am forgetting. I must see that the guards are posted. While Herr Hartier sees to the posting of the guards, your sponsor has a word for you. After that, you will hear an explanation. Inasmuch as all the characters of our story are long since dead, in bringing them back to life, the dramatized solution of this mystery must of necessity take considerable liberties with time. Ladies and gentlemen, the solution for which you have been waiting. To uh, begin with, 
I should explain that I have done a great deal of reading in order to find a scientific explanation of some of the things achieved by the witch doctors. Oh, what books, for instance, Herr Hartley? Oh, well, Sir Churns, Fraser's Golden Bow, White uh, Wound Black Magic by Herr Dr. Hartman, Roaring Bones. Well, that's by Gustav of Sweden, isn't it? Yeah. Seems to me that he says something about a rifle being transported over a great distance in a short space of time. Yeah, yeah, that is right. When he speaks of one of the Obi who transported himself from the hinterland to a coast in a night every time he wanted to count his money back at the trading post. Uh, you understand, uh, thoughts can go to any locality, no matter how far, because all locality is within the sphere of the mind. That is reasonable. Under ordinary circumstances, even though thoughts are sent out into the realm of mind, actual consciousness remains with the body. You mean, then, that it's only one more step to send your inner self, so to speak, on a journey so that you'll be aware of everything you've seen or heard and can remember it when you return to ordinary consciousness? Yeah, yeah, that is it. And you see, the witch doctor, which Fritz and Hans, and the native boys, all concentrating on bringing the quinine to save me, made it possible for the witch doctor's astral body, <laughs> although I do not like that word, but it made it possible for him to travel back to the trading post and return with the quinine. Plus the fact, of course, that the witch doctor has been practicing that very thing for years. Yeah, yeah, you are right. People forget to credit to other people the ability to do things that they themselves cannot do, just as some people are inclined to think of the witch doctors as fakes. Well, I'll admit that after your story tonight, I'll never think of a witch doctor as a fake again. Unsolved Mysteries. Down the ages, man has been seeking the answer to the riddle, what happens in the unseen realm beyond? With all our science, we're as far from answering that question as man was in the beginning. But with the accumulated records of the past, 
The conviction is borne strongly upon some that there is a link joining us mortals with those who have passed this way before. around the table enjoying their after-dinner coffee and cigars. The log fire casts a ruddy glow over the room, and the soft candlelight throws grotesque shadow shapes on the walls and ceiling as the guests settle themselves more comfortably in their chairs. <laughs> but seriously, Bert, while that was a good story, well told you. You don't really believe in ghosts. Now, well, before I answer that question, let me ask you one. Go ahead. Mm, do you completely, wholly, and absolutely disbelieve in them? Joe, when you put it that way, I'm not sure that I can answer you, Bert. <laughs> I suppose in their heart of hearts, most men, while they won't admit it, do have a secret belief in ghosts or something similar. Now, what do you say, Jackson? You're a newspaper man of wide experience. Have you ever run into what you might call a true ghost story in your newspaper work? Yes, I have. An experience of my own, and one, in fact, which I owe my life. Exactly, Jackson. It was that experience of yours that I had in mind. What is that, Jackson? Something we haven't heard about? I don't tell it to many people. But you will tell it to us. Why don't you, Jackson? It's going to be published next month anyway. All right. As you fellows know, I was foreign correspondent of the Sketch Mirror Group. And one of my assignments was to interview celebrities before they became celebrities. Well, I had to make a quick trip to England. It looked very much as if the Asquith government was about to fall, and that Lloyd George would be in the saddle. So I had to interview Lloyd George before the news broke. I concluded my interview and was all ready to leave when I met an old friend. He had become a lord since I first knew him, but that made no difference to him. And the result was that I found myself in their Northumberland home, being greeted by her ladyship and her very charming daughter. Cheerio there, Major. Hello, sis. I want you to both to meet a very old friend of mine, Jackson. Well, not the Mr. Jackson. The very first. Well, I'm so glad to meet you, Mr. Jackson. Keith has spoken of you so much. And I'm delighted to meet Keith's mother and sister. Oh, come, Evelyn, dear. We mustn't keep Mr. Jackson standing in the cold. You shan't want the carriage anymore tonight, Dobbs. Uh, very good, sir. All right. Baxter will take your chaps up. Come right into the hall and get your bones thrown out. <laughs> Thanks, old man. It is a bit silly, huh? Mm, riding up to the house here in a carriage is an experience to one accustomed to riding in a closed car. We don't use the car much up here, and tonight Arthur has it down in the village. 
getting him some supplies. It was charming, even if chilly. But then this open fire makes up for all the coal. Drink excellent with thanks, yes. Stay then. Thanks. Well, here's how. Oh, did you boys have dinner tonight? Thank you, we did, on the train. And by the way, I take back all I've ever thought or said about dinners on an English train. That was one of the best meals I ever had. <laughs> Possibly you were more hungry than usual. There's something I must say. Even if all the books ever written on etiquette say that it's contrary to good taste. Oh, what is that, Mr. Jackson? I'm sure we'll forgive you. Your home. It is without question the most beautiful place I've ever seen. Why, when we were driving up the hill, it looked like some picture out of a children's storybook. A picture of an old medieval castle. The drawbridge, the portcullis, the moat, the towers, and the turrets. It is somewhat of a medieval castle. The North Wing was built in the days of Henry II, and each generation since has added this little bit. And we, well, we added electric lights and plumbing. The plumbing with the devout approval of the family, the electric lights against my mo- own most ardent objection. <laughs> <laughs> well, with electric lights and plumbing, I can't think of anything more to be desired. We even have one of the best ghosts in all England. Yes, our ghost is... You might at least give a chap time to warm his feet before you drag out the family skeleton. Our ghost is not a skeleton. You shouldn't say things like that. You must forgive Evelyn, Mr. Jackson. But Lady Evelyn's ghost is, a uh, well, almost an obsession with Evelyn. <laughs> well, I'm sure that if Lady Evelyn's ghost is half as charming as you are, Miss Evelyn, then she's a ghost I'd like very much to meet. <laughs> well, thank you. Let's go to the gallery and show Mr. Jackson Lady Evelyn's portrait. No, no, my dear. I'd be delighted, really, if it isn't too much trouble. No trouble at all, Jackson. In fact, we're all tired. Since the gallery's on the way to the bedroom... Come along, Mr. Jackson. You come with me. You see, Mr. Jackson, Lady Evelyn's ghost is a very special ghost. She always warns us of any impending disaster. And do you always heed her warning? We do now. And she warned Mother about Father. Father paid no attention. He was killed, just as the ghost warned Mother he would be. Is that the only instance? Oh, no. It's a family tradition dating back several hundred years. Here's the gallery. I'll switch on the light. Mm, no need to tell me which one. There she is. Yes. Why, it could be a portrait of you. I say, old man, don't pay too much attention to what Evelyn tells you about the family skeleton, you know. Keith is quite right, Mr. Jackson. Evelyn is unduly enthusiastic. She's not any more enthusiastic than I am. I'm enjoying the whole thing immensely. Fact is, I'd rather like to meet this ghost, uh, Lady Evelyn. Then, then why don't you sleep in the haunted wing? No, oh, my dear, my dear. Yes, by Jove. Invite a fellow up here, and the first night you want to stick him in the haunted wing. But Jackson did sleep in the haunted wing. The wind howled dismally among the turrets and along the roof leads. The oak-paneled walls creaked as night wore on and the cold became more intense. One by one, the sounds in the old castle died away, and soon Jackson fell into a sound sleep. He wakened with a feeling that someone was in the room, sat up in the big four-poster bed. A woman stood against the far wall. Uh, Miss Evelyn, dressed in old-fashioned clothes, playing the part of the ghost. But the figure shook its head, turned a pair of luminous eyes on him, and started to write on the wall. For a moment, the warning message blazed out in letters of fire. Jackson closed his eyes and, and looked again. A trick. She's writing with phosphorus or something. Again, the figure shook its head, gave him a searching look that went right through him, 
and turning, walked out of the room through the three-foot stone wall. By George, eight o'clock. I didn't realize I was taking so long to tell this story. You'll be late for the theater. Oh, hang the theater. Finish the story. Yes, sure. Well, I did my best to disregard the ghost warning. His lordship drove me to the boat. I should say he tried to, but the car broke down. I missed the boat. And two days later, Keith, with a face as white as a sheet, handed me the morning paper. In glaring headlines, I read, Steamship Titanic Sunk. All on board lost. I thought that was an exaggeration. But I might have been one of the more than thousand who were lost. Good Lord. What did the warning that was written on the wall say? Beware of the Titanic. Nothing more. I told her ladyship next morning. And she was the one who instructed the chauffeur when she found I was determined to sail. She instructed him to break the car, if necessary, to prevent my sailing on the Titanic. Now, do you fellows believe in ghosts? Imagination and not, Jackson, old boy. We're glad you missed the Titanic. And we're darn glad you're here to be our host at this dinner party. Now, we've got time for one toast and off to the theater. Out of deference to people who are still alive, character names in these unsolved mysteries have been changed. Inasmuch as any solution must of necessity be supposition, liberties of time, place, and character exist in the solution that will be presented after you have heard from your sponsor. gentlemen, the solution for which you have been waiting. Of course, I don't blame you for believing in ghosts after an experience like that. But just the same, you can't really explain it. I think I can. I'd like to hear you. Have you ever met a perfect stranger and had the strange sensation of having met him somewhere before? Yes, certainly. Well, the same thing applies to buildings. And the older these buildings are, the more vibration of previous happenings there will be to make their effect upon you. You mean to say that if I go into a building where a murder has been committed, I'll be aware of a strange feeling? You will, if you're sufficiently sensitive. I'll agree there, but that doesn't explain actually seeing what is generally called a ghost. If you've ever tried lying down in perfect ease and comfort, 
Allowing your imagination to drift back to some particularly memorable scene, the picture will come to you as vividly as if it had happened yesterday. Or take an author writing a story. The characters are just as real in his mind as any group of living people about whom he has only read. I'll agree to all that very well. Don't you think that if, over a period of centuries, people living in a certain house are all agreed that the ghost of a beautiful woman haunts the house, don't you think that that impression will impress itself very strongly upon a stranger who sleeps in the so-called haunted room? Yes, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I really do think that if a sufficient number of people all think along one line, something is going to result. And, of course, you were thinking of your trip on the Titanic as well as the ghost. So you're willing to admit that concentrated thinking will produce a manifestation. And if that's the case, why deny that an extremely emotional incident would produce a similar manifestation? Hey, there's something to that, isn't there? Yeah, you've got me almost convinced. But just the same, I'll have a stronger belief in ghosts when I meet one face to face. Well, if I ever meet a ghost, I hope it will be like the ghost of the Lady Evelyn. One that will have such good intentions bred in it that even if I'm a stranger, it will warn me of any impending disaster. Of course, the ghost of Lady Evelyn would have warned anyone who had been in the room whether or not they had had any intention of sailing on the Titanic. That part of it, I think, is coincident. Do you? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.